Welcome to Philosophers on Medicine. Side effects include having your mind blown. I'm Jonathan Fuller. Mental disorders cause suffering for many and pose challenges for the psychiatric profession. Throughout history, the way that society and psychiatry have thought about mental disorders has changed greatly. One area of great difficulty and great change has been psychiatric classification, how psychiatry carves up the realm of mental illness into diagnostic categories. During the second half of the 20th century, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM, became the Bible of Psychiatry, the most influential psychiatric classification system. But through its several editions, criticism has followed the DSM, which serves as a target for debates about how psychiatric diagnosis and research should be done. At the head of these debates have been several philosophers. In today's consultation, I speak with three philosophers of psychiatry, Rachel Cooper, Jonathan Sue, and Catherine Tabb. Let's start with Rachel Cooper, professor in the Department of Politics, Philosophy, and Religion at Lancaster University. Professor Cooper, what are mental disorders? So, when people who talk about mental disorders have in mind things like depression and schizophrenia. And for people who talk about mental disorders, they tend to think that mental disorders are quite like physical disorders except that they manifest in disturbing how people think or what their emotions are when they're treated by psychiatrists. But there are some people who think that there are no such things as mental disorders and who would talk about mental distress instead because they don't think that mental disorders are like other types of disorders. And I guess one of the big problems is that quite often if someone's acting in a way that seems atypical and kind of troubling, it can be really hard to know whether that's because they're choosing to act in a particular way or if they can't help acting in that way. So if you take someone who's drinking heavily and kind of upsetting their family and it looks like they're ruining their life, it's hard to know whether they just like drinking a lot or if there's some kind of underlying disorder which is making them behave like that. In the 1960s, the psychiatrist Thomas Saz claimed that mental illness is a myth, famously denying that mental illnesses constitute genuine disorders. So what is meant by that claim that mental illness is a myth? So, yeah, so Thomas says, so that was the title of his book, The Myth of Mental Illness. So he was someone who felt that psychiatrists were pretending to treat disorders like other types of disorder, and they were pretending to be experts. But he felt that in lots of cases, there was very little evidence that there actually was something wrong with the brains of people who acted in troubling ways. And says thinks that as a society, we find it reassuring when we're faced with people who are troubling or who behave in ways that we don't understand to sometimes uh, label them as having a mental disorder. Whereas actually Saz thinks that quite often what's going on is that there's a disagreement and that people disagree about what the best way to live is. So the kinds of example he was thinking of in particular is in 19... 60s, uh, particularly in the United States at the time, quite a lot of psychiatrists would diagnose people with schizophrenia quite easily. So you could imagine a case at that time where if there's a teenager who disagrees with their parents and, you know, they decide to take some drugs, they don't want to go to war, that kind of thing, then get taken to a psychiatrist and be diagnosed as having a mental disorder, whereas Saz thinks that there's just a disagreement there. Sometimes... People claim that mental disorders are natural kinds. Other times they deny this idea. So what are natural kinds in philosophy and are mental disorders natural kinds? 
When philosophers talk about natural kinds, so the best examples would be chemical elements, maybe also biological species. And the idea when people talk about natural kinds is that it's just a fact about the world that there are certain ways of splitting it up, of classifying it, that work really well for science. So if you think of something like chemical elements, being able to know what chemical element a sample is is really useful because all samples of gold alike and they behave in the same way you know they have the same melting point and so on and so forth biological species are still quite like that although the predictions you make aren't quite so reliable but it's still the case that if something's a cat it will probably like chasing mice and will eat cat food and so on so when it comes to mental disorders the debate over whether those are natural kinds or not has to do fundamentally with whether you can think of types of mental disorder as being fairly like biological species or not. So whether everyone who has a diagnosis of depression, say, whether it is the case that there's some underlying reason that means that they've all got a condition which is a fundamentally the same kind that you might hope to treat in the same kind of way or not. Are mental disorders natural kinds then? So I think the boring answer is that it's almost certainly the case that some are. So one of the things about um, psychiatry and about mental disorders is that the kinds of condition that get called mental disorders are very heterogeneous. Now, in amongst the many disorders that are considered mental disorders, I think that some are natural kinds. So there are quite a lot of organic mental disorders. So those are things that have a known um, underlying uh, cause. Um, so there's various things that can go wrong uh, with the way that, that you think because you've messed up your brain with different types of drug or something like Down syndrome, for example. So I think some conditions are natural kinds. And then there's going to be other cases where at the moment psychiatrists might group things together in a way which is suboptimal. So you could imagine, say somebody doesn't know very much about animals and they group all farm animals together. That's going to work roughly. So you can still make claims like, well, farm animals normally eat grass and that's going to be a rough and ready kind of guide to how to interact with them. But you'd be better off picking out pigs and cows and sheep and splitting it up more. So there's quite a lot of researchers who think that schizophrenia might turn out to be like that. But at the moment, people who are diagnosed with schizophrenia suffer from different types of issue. And that if it was divided in different ways, that might work better. And then it's likely that there are some psychiatric kinds where they really are just grouping together things in ways that don't really make sense. And that they are just motley collections of people with different types of issue. And that hopefully one day as science progresses, it might be possible to classify things more appropriately. Somewhat like biological species, Psychiatry's categories of mental disorder have evolved over time with the introduction of the DSM and its subsequent revisions. Some philosophers have argued that the way recent editions of the DSM are structured is ill-suited to achieving some of the DSM's functions, perhaps because the current classification structure fails to pick out natural kinds. I next speak with Jonathan Sue, Associate Professor in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at Iowa State University. Dr. Sue, what is the DSM? Can you give us a brief synopsis of the history of the manual? So the, the DSM is the most influential and widely used psychiatric manual. It's currently the most authoritative psychiatric classification manual in the world. It's often referred to as the Bible of mental disorders. It's been published regularly by the American Psychiatric Association, the APAA, 
1952, currently in its fifth edition. So before the, you know, the first edition of the DSM in 1952, there was a predecessor manual. This is called the Statistical Manual for the Use of Institutions of the Insane. I'm just going to refer to that as the Statistical Manual. This was published by the American Medical Psychological Association. So this is actually the original APA, and it changed its name to American Psychiatric Association in 1921. And so the purpose of the statistical manual was to collect uniform statistical information about inpatients at mental hospitals. And this manual was first published in 1918. It went through 10 editions, so ending in 1942. So what happened was after World War II, it was starting to become clear that the statistical manual, it wasn't able to account for the types of patients that military psychiatrists saw during the war. And the statistical manual also wasn't able to accommodate psychoanalytic assumptions, which were increasingly becoming entrenched in American psychiatry during the 1940s. So in 1948, the International Classification of Diseases, the ICD, which is published by the World Health Organization, was publishing its sixth edition, so the ICD-6, which included a section on mental disorders for the very first time. And so the APA Committee on Nomenclature and Statistics, they published a variant of ICD-6 in 1952, and this turned out to be the first DSMs. DSM-2 was published in uh, 1968. DSM-3 was published in 1980. This third edition of the DSM was the most important revision of the DSM, and then DSM-5 was published in 2013. Between the second and third editions of the DSM, there was a significant conceptual shift. What happened? DSM-3 is said to have marked a revolution in psychiatric classification. And basically what you see during this time is a shift from a psychoanalytic and etiological system of classification to an atheoretical and purely descriptive approach to classification. So there was a drastic change in the methodology that the DSM used to classify mental disorders. So the first two editions of the DSM, they were highly informed by psychoanalytic psychiatry. So this includes Freudian psychoanalysis, but also Adolf Meyer's uh, life course approach to psychiatry, which is this social psychological kind of approach to psychiatry that tries to insert individuals in their environments. So besides being informed by psychoanalysis, DSM-2 and DSM-1, they, they both classify disorders in an etiological manner, that is by causal considerations. So in the first two editions of DSM, you sometimes see the causes of disorders actually indicated in its description or its actual name. And more generally, disorders were distinguished into disorders that had biological causes and disorders that had psychological causes. So in DSM-2, this distinction is drawn in the language of organic brain syndromes for kind of brain disorders and functional disorders for psychological disorders. And these disorders with psychological causes, which I'd mentioned include schizophrenia and depression, they were understood as uh, psychological reactions as opposed to kind of diseases. And, you know, the reasons for this are quite complicated, but one of the most important kind of factors in this shift was by the late 1970s, the psychoanalytic approach to psychiatry was losing its favor uh, quite heavily to biological psychiatry. In 1974, the APA, they appointed Robert Spitzer to be the head of the DSM-3 task force, 
Spitzer, he was a proponent of biological psychiatry, and he selected a number of like-minded colleagues. They had close ties at Washington University in St. Louis. And this task force, they worked together to transform the DSM to be more amenable to biological psychiatry. So in practice, this really amounted to removing all the psychoanalytic language from the DSM-2 to a more neutral kind of behavioral and psychological terminology. So in DSM-3, you see the introduction of operational definitions to define mental disorders, whereas DSM-1 and DSM-2 featured these brief narrative descriptions of mental disorders. DSM-3 introduced the kind of now familiar diagnostic criteria for mental disorders. So the diagnostic criteria basically implied that if you're going to receive a diagnosis of a mental disorder, individuals need to meet a set of necessary and sufficient criteria, usually observable criteria or something a patient can report. So this distinction between brain disorders and psychological reactions was completely removed. There's an implicit assumption in DSM-3 that mental disorders are all just diseases. So the, the most prominent changes uh, you see between DSM-2 and DSM-3 is DSM-2 is primarily a psychoanalytic manual, drew causal distinctions between disorders. DSM-3 uh, very explicitly adopted an atheoretical and purely descriptive approach. So its classifications, they weren't at all interested in what caused the disorders, just describing disorders and providing criteria. What are the functions of the DSM, and are they well served by this descriptive approach to classification of mental disorders? I think the goals of the DSM have never been that clear. So, you know, the initial statistical manual from the early 20th century, that was interested in just collecting statistical information. Now, in the introduction to the fourth edition of the DSM, uh, DSM-4, you find one of the most clear statements about the function and aims of the DSM. And this was written by Alan Francis, who is the chief editor. There it said that the main purpose of the DSM is to provide a helpful guide for treatment. Other aims that it indicates are to facilitate research and improve communication. So there's this kind of explicit statement of three goals of a DSM. You help treatment, help research, improve communication. So I've argued in some places that besides this goal of improving communication with these kinds of standardized definitions of disorders, the treatment goals and research goals are not well served by the descriptive approach championed by the DSM. With respect to the treatment goals, the DSM is meant to provide clear diagnoses that guide clinicians' decisions about treatment interventions. Now, in practice, this diagnosis treatment model is rarely followed, at least not along the ideal that they claim. So there's very little evidence, I think, that the fine-grained distinctions made in the DSM are useful for guiding treatment decisions. One well-known problem with the DSM definitions is comorbidity, where individuals present symptoms that are going to meet more than one DSM diagnosis. Sociologists, they've discussed how practitioners using the DSM often give deliberate, inaccurate DSM diagnoses. So sometimes they'll give a less severe diagnosis to minimize the stigmatizing effects of labels, or sometimes they'll give a diagnosis just so their clients can receive reimbursement for treatment. So having a DSM diagnosis is necessary to get reimbursed for insurance. So 
in the in treatment context, I think the DSM appears to be an administrative constraint rather than a helpful guide for treatment decisions. There's also reasons to be wary about how useful the DSM is for guiding our research. DSM guides research by providing standardized definitions of disorders, and this allows researchers to select homogeneous populations of patients to study. However, if we have no reason to think that DSM definitions map onto real distinctions in nature, this just offers a recipe for legitimizing disorders that have no basis in reality, right? reifying false disorders. And in fact, this is one of the largest complaints of the DSM in the literature. And I mean, I mean, not just the philosophical literature, but the psychiatric literature. While the definitions of DSM are thought to be reliable insofar as different individuals can apply the criteria in a consistent and uniform way, we don't have good evidence that the definitions are valid. That is, that the definitions map onto disorders that exist in nature. And this is the kind of criticism that motivated people in the National Institute for Mental Health to develop this alternative system of psychiatric classification, the RDOC, that could identify valid psychiatric constructs. Why do you advocate for a causal or theoretical approach to classification in psychiatry? My advocacy of a causal and theoretical approach to psychiatric classification is in large part based on the history and the goals of the DSM. It's evident that members of the DSM-3 task force that wanted the manual to classify natural kinds, so actually Spitzer and his colleagues, they wanted to include a statement in DSM-3 stating that mental disorders are a subset of medical diseases. And this garnered a lot of controversy, and in fact, the, the statement was never made in the DSM-3. And in other articles, they made similar types of statements. So they thought that mental disorders were diseases. We think diseases are natural kinds. And I agree this is the right kind of goal for the DSM. And in many ways, I agree with the goals of the DSM that I talked about earlier. I might have quibbles about how broad the aims of the DSM might be, but I think uh, providing a useful guide for treatment, helping to coordinate research, these are worthy kinds of goals. But I don't think that the descriptive approach to classification has done the right job. For reasons I discussed earlier, I think that the DSM's favored descriptive methodology has failed to provide valid classifications of disorders, which I think is equivalent to a failure of the DSM to identify natural kinds. I've argued that a causal and theoretical approach to classification would provide a more promising method than the DSM's purely descriptive approach for identifying natural kinds or providing valid diagnostic categories. So the causal and theoretical approach to that I advocate, it would incorporate causal information, information about the biological causes of disorders into its classifications. So I'm not against descriptive approaches to classification. I think these operational definitions are a fine way to kind of classify disorders. I'm just against a purely descriptive approach. So on my kind of ideal, I think that the descriptive criteria of the DSM must be supplemented at least with the assumption that the symptoms that define mental disorders are caused by stable sets of biological mechanisms. So this would provide a more transparent approach to classification. It would be understood that the descriptive symptoms used to define disorders have biological causes. If no causes are found in research context for the symptoms, 
it gives us an explicit theoretical reason to remove a classification for the manual or to revise the symptoms that we use to define disorders. At present, I think there's no clear criterion for whether a disorder merits inclusion or exclusion in the DSM. And some people have argued that this has led to a proliferation of categories in the DSM over time. A causal approach informed by biological research would give us a clear and explicit criterion for including disorders and which symptoms should be used to define disorders. And as a more kind of mundane reason for this explicit theoretical approach to classification is, I just think it's more academically honest in some ways. The DSM is claimed to be an atheoretical manual, but it's really been a manual driven by biological psychiatry since DSM-3. So I think it's just time to be upfront about that. Heterogeneity, the fact that particular psychiatric diagnoses often group together symptomatically and pathologically quite diverse people, is a commonly cited problem with the DSM. To help us better understand this problem and the potential solution provided by the Research Domain Criteria, or RDOC, here's Catherine Tabb, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Bard College. Dr. Tabb, the DSM has been criticized by many different philosophers on many different grounds. In what ways do you think the DSM falls short as a manual for classifying mental disorders? You're right that there are so many criticisms, it's hard to know where to start. And they come, I think, from different interest groups. That's one way to kind of break them down. So from the clinical side, there's a lot of concerns about comorbidity, for example, when the categories are used in practice. There's concerns that most clinicians use the same 8 to 12 categories over and over, ignoring the bulk of what's in that enormously fat, very expensive book. There's those more kind of pragmatic concerns. In my own work, I've focused on frustrations coming from researchers, especially researchers who are not as clinically oriented, but are interested in finding the mechanisms that underlie psychiatric disorders. And for those researchers, there's been an increasingly strong feeling that kind of came to a head in the beginning of the 21st century that the categories of the DSM pick out too heterogeneous a population to allow for the discovery of mechanisms. So because the DSM works through polythetic conditions, so you need to have, say, four out of nine symptoms or five out of eight or whatever it is um, for a given diagnosis, people can manifest the disorder in profoundly different ways. So two people can share a disorder, even though they share just a very minimum numbers of symptoms that the category requires. And because of that, if you're trying to gather together a population of test subjects, of people to do a study on, you end up with a very diverse group. And the chances are good that that population is heterogeneous in the etiology of their disease, in the causal mechanisms that underlie their disease. So it may be hard to draw the kind of generalizations that researchers want to draw. And this has been called an epistemic bottleneck that the DSM puts on psychiatric research by Steve Hyman, who directed the National Institute of Mental Health, right about the turn of the 21st century. Why do you say that diagnostic discrimination rather than diagnostic validity is a better way of understanding one way in which the DSM falls short? Validity, to my mind, is a really fraught concept. One challenge that comes with the use of the term is that different specialties use it very, very differently. So even among scientists, it's used very differently in psychology and in psychiatry. And then philosophers use it very differently as well. And the big confusion that I see is sometimes it's used as a measure of how real something is. So you'll see 
Psychiatrists saying things like schizophrenia is a valid diagnosis, it really exists, that kind of thing. For others, validity is a measure of how a construct performs when we do certain things with it in a scientific context or in a practical context. And there, it's not a metaphysical issue about whether or not the valid entity really exists. It's a measure that can be used like any kind of other instrument that can help us understand what's going on with a construct. So I think there's a lot of just confusion about the term. And in my own work, when I'm trying to get at what I see as the worry that psychiatric researchers have, I don't actually think it's that kind of deep metaphysical worry, though they might have that too. So there have been concerns about what has been called the reification of psychiatric categories, that is, making into a thing of something that is actually construction, the positing of the reality of something that actually is just a construct. And people have worried about the effects of this kind of reification on psychiatric inquiry. And the thought there is that once we think of diagnostic kinds as referring to things in the world, as cutting nature at its joints, to use a common way of talking about natural kinds, we then become kind of committed to those entities in a way that maybe we shouldn't be. But one of the points that I try to make in my work on diagnostic discrimination is that if categories fail to discriminate in the way that we need them to, to do the kind of work that we need to do, it doesn't matter if we're reifying them or not. So we can take a totally constructionist approach to a category like schizophrenia, and we can all recognize that it doesn't refer to any natural kind that exists in reality. And it's still going to put the kinds of constraints on research that the investigators who I study are worried about, because it will still capture a group of subjects for a study who are heterogeneous. It will still refer to individuals who might have completely different etiologies and causal histories that explain their disease. What is the RDOC? The research domain criteria, now what the last letter there is is always in question. Research domain criteria project sometimes, research domain criteria matrix. Um, people refer to both things. And the difference I think is important. The research domain criteria matrix refers to a tool that was created by the National Institute of Mental Health to allow researchers to present their projects to the institute to be considered for funding. So it's a tool that researchers can use when they apply for grants to describe the objects of their inquiry without reference to DSM categories. So traditionally, if you approach the NIMH for money, you might say, I'm interested in researching auditory hallucination in schizophrenia. Because of the worries that the DSM is creating a kind of epistemic bottleneck where it becomes hard to study certain aspects of mental disorder because the DSM controls what counts as mental disorder, the NIMH developed the research domain criteria matrix as a tool for escaping the hegemony of the DSM in research contexts. Now, RDOC has grown well beyond that, insofar as people often take it as indicative of a much broader shift in the NIMH priorities. So when people talk about the RDOC program or just talk about RDOC as itself an entity, in a way, that tool has been kind of reified to represent a new NIMH, one that's really focused on mechanistic inquiry, one that is less interested in clinical research and more interested in basic science and translational research. And for some psychiatrists, this can feel a bit alienating because the research domain criteria matrix 
encourages researchers to present their work in terms of two factors. One is the unit of analysis, which goes from genes all the way up to self-report. And the other is what are called domains, which are divided into constructs, which are drawn from neuroscience and from cognitive science and are things like um, attention or response, that kind of thing. So for psychiatrists who are working in a clinical setting, there's no psychopathology there. Really, they're asked to present research that has to do with genetics, that has to do with neuroscience, that has to do with physiology, that has to do with biology, and that brings one of those realms into communication with one of these constructs from cognitive science. So for someone who is really focused on clinical entities, this can be a bit alienating, and this has created a lot of just kind of political strife between professional psychiatrists, epidemiologists, and the, the NIMH, and more basic science researchers thinking about psychiatric questions. So you mentioned things like um, genetics in there. What about sciences like psychology or other social sciences? Are they kind of part of the mix in terms of deciding what gets counted as part of the RDoC matrix? When the RDoC was first introduced, it was introduced with a new set of goals and directives for the NIMH. Those were very focused on neuroscience. You know, things are changing now because there's a new director. But under Thomas Insel, who is the director for most of the early years of the 21st century, the position seemed to be that they were interested in work that crossed levels of what philosophers would call levels of explanation or levels of analysis, but that one of those levels should be the level of the neural circuit. So they were interested in work that, sure, looked at social factors or looked at psychological factors, and there's a, certainly a column on the RDoC matrix for self-report, for behavior, but they always wanted that work to be comparative and to draw connections with the level of the neural circuit. Can the RDoC help us overcome some of the problems with the DSM that we've been discussing? I've argued in past work that the RDoC can really help overcome the problem of diagnostic discrimination insofar as what it does is it takes away the important role that the DSM's categories have played in research into psychopathology. So insofar as critics are right that the DSM has acted as an epistemic bottleneck and has caused certain aspects of psychopathology to be neglected and also just kind of gotten in the way of the discovery of underlying mechanisms, yes, I think it can be very helpful. Now, does that help come at the expense of the generation of new problems? I think maybe. I think certainly. And the question is, how serious are those problems? So some problems that have been raised is because of the neuroscientific focus, not really of RDoC, but of the NIMH as a whole these days. There's a worry about what has been called neurocentrism, that other modes of investigating or explaining mental disorder will be neglected in favor of those that at least have a neuroscientific component. So that's one worry. Another worry that people have expressed is that the, the domains and constructs that RDoC asks researchers to focus could themselves become reified. So that matrix is capturing the state of the art in cognitive neuroscience in you know, 2006. The NIMH responds to that kind of worry by saying that the matrix will evolve and adapt. But the question then is who's making those decisions about what gets included as a construct that can be investigated and what doesn't. So that's a concern. The biggest worry that I see is a worry that Jerry Wakefield has brought up, which is a concern 
about where our ideas of psychopathology are going to come from when we do work from this new perspective. Because RDOC itself does not have any place for psychopathology, it's about investigating these constructs at certain levels of analysis, there's a question of what makes work done within this paradigm still psychiatric as opposed to just neuroscientific, genetic, etc. And I think this is a real concern. I asked the director of the RDOC wing of the NIMH once about this. And she said, well, look, there's variation you know, among subjects in how they perform. There's a variation in the functioning of these kinds of mechanisms. And pathology is what's located at the ends of that variation. So if you picture like a bell curve, you know, we can look at the tails and that's what we want to call pathological. Now this, for anyone who's ever taken a philosophy of medicine class, is immediately problematic, right? You know, think about height. We don't just want to say people at either ends are pathological. Think about IQ, where being at one end is usually seen as an advantage, not a disadvantage. So that sort of simplistic approach to thinking about what counts as pathological and what counts as normal, I think is very, very worrying. And the DSM, you know, for all its crimes, was a really, I think, important conservative presence in our thinking about mental disorder. For better or for worse, there was something we could refer to when we wanted to know whether or not something counted as a disorder. If we throw the DSM out the window and we don't replace it with a really robust account of psychopathology, there's a real risk that, first of all, that forms of mental suffering could be neglected because they just aren't being considered in this new framework, but also that things could become medicalized that weren't medicalized before because there isn't any kind of principled way to determine what's a pathology and what's not. The most recent edition of the DSM is DSM-5, released in 2013. Did DSM-5 incorporate a greater theoretical neuroscientific understanding of mental disorders? Was it a departure or more of the same? I ask Rachel Cooper. The DSM has gone through certain revisions over time, the most recent revision was the DSM-5, the fifth iteration. So what was different about DSM-5 compared to the previous version, DSM-4? So the DSM-5 came out in 2013. Everyone was very excited about it coming out. So the process of revising the DSM was a huge undertaking. And early on, when the committees got together to start producing a new version of the DSM, there was a lot of talk about how there needed to be a paradigm shift and how the DSM-5 was going to be radically different from the versions that came before. I think that when it came out, the most striking thing is how very similar it is in many respects to the DSM-4. So when you look at the conditions that are included in it and the sets of diagnostic criteria, for the most part, they're the same. So there are some differences. And because to the people who, who receive the diagnoses, where there are conditions included in the DSM and exactly what the criteria are, are really, really important. So the changes are important for those people, but overall, the DSM-5 is quite like the DSM-4 when it comes to the categories that it includes. Um, I think, though, there have been important differences at the conceptual level. So I think one of the most striking differences between the DSM-5 and the earlier versions is that in the introduction to the DSM, there's a definition of mental disorder. And in the previous versions of the DSM, it had to be the case that your condition was causing you some kind of problem. It had to be causing you distress or stopping you living well in some, in some way for you to 
be considered to have a mental disorder. And that had come out of the debates in the 1970s about the status of homosexuality. So out of those debates, that it had become to be quite broadly accepted that something could only be a mental disorder if it caused someone harm. But in the DSM-5, that claim is now gone. So that now it's possible, although in practice at the moment, still quite unlikely, that somebody might receive a diagnosis of having a mental disorder just because they're, they're different, even if their condition isn't actually causing them any problems. So I think that when it comes to the actual conditions included in it and the sets of diagnostic criteria, the DSM-5 is quite like the previous version, but at this conceptual level, there's a very important shift. Was the DSM-5 a step back, a step forward, and in what ways? There are some things about the DSM-5 that are better than the previous editions. So I think the process of revising the DSM has been improved in various ways. So the DSM is produced by the American Psychiatric Association. So it's, it's a process which is very much controlled by US psychiatrists. But with the DSM-5, they have made more of an effort to open up the process so that other people can comment on it because the DSM affects lots of people, you know, patient groups, obviously, but other people as well. So with the DSM-5, for the first time, they made draft versions available online and various groups could comment on those. And in some cases, that made some differences. I think that's kind of an admirable change. Another change in the process is that groups who were proposing revisions to the DSM for the first time were asked to try to make sure that if they were going to put a new condition in the DSM, that was likely to help the people who received the diagnosis rather than harm them. I think that's an admirable shift. So that's good. The definition of disorders changed, and I think that's problematic because it used to be the case that you could only be considered to have a mental disorder if it caused you problems, and now that's, now that's gone. With the release of the DSM-5, there was also a lot of, I'll say, backlash. Not everyone agreed with many of the changes that were made, and I think it called into question the supremacy of the DSM as the overarching diagnostic framework for psychiatry, especially outside of America. So will the DSM remain the so-called Bible of psychiatry or what might happen to psychiatric classification? So the DSM is often called the Bible of psychiatry and it's a very big book so it's like the Bible in, the, in that respect. At the moment psychiatric research and practice and also research and practice in the mental health field more generally outside of psychiatry is very much structured by the DSM. Looking to the future that might change. So one thing that has happened is as researchers are attempting to move towards using a new classification, which would be called the RDOC. That's designed specifically for research. That's a, a, a huge and expensive project. I think that it would be many, many decades down the line that it would lead to something that could be kind of used in practice. So at the moment, that's not a serious competitor to the DSM, I don't think. The other thing that might happen is that the DSM is a US product. So at the moment, US psychiatry is kind of world leading, and partly that's for economic reasons, I think. So the US at the moment is the largest market for pharmaceutical drugs. That means that when you drugs are developed, it's really, really important to manufacturers that they're approved for use in the US. And that means that when they're doing drug trials, they use DSM categories. 
But that might not always be the case. So, for example, China has got a massive population and is a kind of emerging market for pharmaceutical drugs. Looking to the future, if it was the case that there was more money in selling psychiatric drugs in China, then the regulatory procedures around that differ. And China also has a very different way of thinking about mental disorders. So if there was a shift such that US psychiatry was no longer as important as it is at the moment, and that might be for, I think, economic reasons, then some other classification might become more important in the future. But I think for the next decade or so, the DSM is still going to remain central to how, how mental health clinicians, researchers and people who, who receive diagnoses and kind of bureaucratic institutions think about mental disorders. To hear more Philosophers on Medicine, visit www.philosophersonmedicine.com or find us on iTunes or Google Play.